The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Burke told me to emphasize verse 10. Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Yes. Sing to him, sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came forth, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. It must have been hard to leave the land of Ham. That was a joke. <laughs> Bacon. <laughs> Okay, we're in Joshua 24, 6 through 15 today. This is the part two of a part three series entitled, For He is a Holy God. All right, starting in verse 6, going down to verse 15. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. 
and I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also, the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. These first two sermons from Joshua 24 have been mostly recounting what has taken place. Joshua has done this as a method of teaching the people a particular truth that the Lord has been faithful to the people, and he brought them into their promised homeland, Canaan. The Lord, through Joshua, has selected details that are relevant to this coming about in his recounting. As noted last week, the giving of the law, the law of Moses, was notably missing from those details. Israel's inability to go into Canaan prior to the wilderness wanderings was not because of disobeying the law. It was because the people did not have faith in the Lord. In rejecting his word, he rejected them. This is not at all unlike the speech Stephen gave to the people in Acts chapter 7. Though the main subject of the speech in Acts 7 deals with the people's rejection of the Lord rather than the Lord's faithfulness, the final verses of the passage today are centered on the people remaining faithful to the Lord. The people were unfaithful to the word of the Lord in Numbers and the people were unfaithful to the word who is the Lord in Acts. After both, a time of punishment came upon them. Our text verse comes from Acts 7. It's verses 42 and 43. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God, Ramphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. In 1979, Bob Dylan released his album, Slow Train Coming. He had met the Lord Jesus and put his thoughts into music. One of the songs he wrote was, Gotta Serve Somebody. He made a point that a man is destined to serve somebody. One of the verses says, well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. In the passage today, Joshua will set a choice before the people. They can serve the Lord or to return to the gods of their fathers. In Acts 7, Stephen made a direct connection between Israel's time in the wilderness and what would come upon them again for rejecting Jesus. With their rejection of him, their temple was destroyed and they were removed to the furthest parts of the planet serving every God imaginable except the Lord who had come to dwell among them. For most of Israel, that continues today. That will change and someday they will be brought into the new covenant. Faithfulness to the Lord is what all people should be focused on. Our continued trip through Joshua is filled with wonderful details of this truth. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you. The first is, into the land of the Amorite. It's verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. Rather, it reads, and I brought out your fathers from Egypt. 
The words continue with the great acts of the Lord on behalf of Israel. Specifically, they detail the continued deliverance from Egypt that was noted in verse 24-5 with the general words, afterward, I brought you out. The general statement was made, and now the process is being described. Although these elders were probably there at the time of being brought out, they had to be 19 years old or younger. All others died in the wilderness. That was seen in the book of Numbers. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. By mentioning the fathers, the Lord is indirectly reminding the people of their faithlessness, even in the midst of his faithfulness. Verse 6 continues, and you came to the sea, hayama, and you came the seaward. The word bo signifies to come or go or come in or go in. In this case, it is not in the sea. They came seaward. Verse 6 continues, And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. The words are abrupt, having no preposition before the word Red Sea. Ve'yirdfu mitzrayim achare avotechem berechev uve farashim yam suf and pursued Egypt after your fathers in chariot and in horsemen, Red Sea. The account in Exodus says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirot before Baal-Zephon. Verse 7, so they cried out to the Lord, Vayitzaku el Yehovah, and they cried unto Yehovah. This is recorded in Exodus 14, leaving out much of the detail, but simply focusing on what is most pertinent to the current narrative. Exodus 14, and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. There was a need. The people cried out in their need, verse 7 continues, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. More precisely, and he put darkness between you and between the Egyptians. Here's a word found nowhere else in scripture, ma'afel. It comes from the adjective afel, which is only found once in scripture. Amos 5 verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark afel with no brightness in it? Thus, it would be an opaque, gloomy darkness. This event was recorded in Exodus 14 as well. Here it says, And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. With this opaque, gloomy darkness, the Egyptians would be unable to see the disaster that lay ahead of them. Verse 7 continues, brought the sea upon them and covered them. Not a single translation that I read correctly translates these words. The two that got it partly right are, and he set thick darkness between you and the Egyptians, plural, and brings the sea over him and covers them. And then from that, that was the literal standard version. And then from Smith's literal translation, and he will put darkness between you and between Egypt, singular, and he will bring the sea upon him and will cover him. Rather, it is singular. Vayave alav et hayam ve kasehu, and brought upon him the sea and covered him. The word Egyptians is plural and the two pronouns are singular. As in verse 24, 5, where the pronoun was also singular, it is referring to Pharaoh who represents the nation. Ultimately, the battle was the Lord against Pharaoh, and Pharaoh didn't measure up. 
This was recorded in Exodus 14 as well. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. With the victory recorded, the Lord sums up the matter. Verse 7 continues, And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. From the first three signs Moses presented to the elders of Israel, through the many plagues upon the land, even to the total destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, the people were first-hand witnesses. They didn't read about it in a scroll or hear about it from their fathers, but they were there and they saw with their own eyes. Of note is the changing from the third person to the first person in this verse. Then they cried out to Jehovah, and he put darkness between you and between the Egyptians and brought, plural, upon him the sea, and he covered him and saw your eyes what I did in Egypt. The words were in the first person from verse 3 through verse 6. They suddenly change to the third person and then return to the first person. The reason seems to be that both are speaking of God in Christ. The darkness was attributed to the angel of God, a type of Christ, going between the camps. The covering of the Egyptians was said to be done by Moses' hand, but that is explained by Exodus 14:16, which says, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. The rod typical of the leveraged power of God in Christ, as was seen in the Exodus sermons, was the action that destroyed the Egyptians. One can think of Jesus' work on the cross and see the reason for the change from the first to the third person. I know that's confusing, but there has to be a reason why the Lord suddenly changes from the first to the third person, right in the middle of the sentence in his word, and the Trinity gives the reason, the fact that Christ, God in Christ, took that action. They went plural for that particular part of the verse. However, and despite the marvelous work of the Lord and without stating the obvious reason for it, the Lord next says, verse 7 continues, Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Vateshvu vamidbar yamim rabim, and dwelt in the wilderness days many. This was inclusive of traveling to Sinai, being at the mountain during the time of receiving the law and constructing the sanctuary, departing for Egypt, spying out the land, rejecting the Lord by refusing to enter Canaan, and being sentenced to die in the wilderness until the adult generation had perished. The period of many days was 40 years. That said, the Lord continues, verse 8, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites. Amorite here is singular. The Lord brought Israel, the people, into the land of the nation of the Amorite, meaning renowned. This begins the third section of the discourse, which is the move into the land of the Amorites on the east of the Jordan and their defeat. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the third section, you'll have to go back and watch the previous sermon because I detailed five sections of this particular passage that we're looking at right now. The Lord is preparing to bring Israel into Canaan, but there were foes to face prior to entering the land. The specifics of this are recorded in Numbers 21, 21 through 31, but are summed up in the words, Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. That's Numbers 21, 31. It is the nation of the Amorite, verse 8 continues, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Hayoshev be'ever hayarden, the dweller inside the Jordan. This foe was east of the Jordan and had to be dealt with prior to Israel's entry into the land. Verse 8 continues, And they fought with you. This was inclusive of several battles, but two of them are especially highlighted. The first was with Sihon, king of the Amorites, the main verses of which say, from Numbers 21, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. 
Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. The second was with Og, king of Bashan. Also in Numbers 21, it says, Then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons and all his people, until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. The Amorite refused Israel's request to allow them to pass through their land and came out against them in battle. Verse 8 continues, But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. As is so often the case, the Lord notes that despite Israel having waged the war, it was he who gave the victory. Without the Lord, they could not prevail. But with his presence among them, they could not lose. Verse 9, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. The word laham, to fight, battle, or war against another, is used. However, no battle took place against Moab. This is not a contradiction. Rather, it says that Balak arose to make war against Israel. It doesn't say that he made war against Israel. Knowing that Israel had defeated Sihon and Og, he knew they were a force to be reckoned with. And so, in order to wage war, he determined to have the battle essentially won before he even entered into it. Therefore, he arose to make war. Verse 9 continues, And sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. The substance of this is addressed at the opening of Numbers 22, and it explains how he planned to defeat Israel. There it says, Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people, because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us, as an ox licks up the grass in the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too many for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Despite his cunning plan, he misunderstood the relationship of the Lord to Israel. Verse 10, but I would not listen to Balaam. The narrative in Numbers 22 specifically says again and again that Balaam spoke to the Lord, meaning Jehovah. He was familiar with the worship of the Lord, just as Job was. However, his understanding of the Lord was certainly incorrect. Further, his understanding of the relationship of the Lord with Israel was not known until the Lord revealed it to him. Verse 10 continues, Therefore, he continued to bless you. Ve'barach baruch etchem. And blessing, he blessed you. This is recorded in Numbers 23 and 24. The first two times Balaam sought to curse Israel in accord with the request of Balak, the Lord instead sent a word of blessing. Finally, Balaam gave up and prophesied his own word of blessing over Israel without the Lord's direction. Verse 10 continues, So I delivered you out of his hand. And I delivered you from his hand. This is probably directly referring to Balak, who had arisen to go to war with Israel. But it is inclusive of the means of his strategy, meaning the employment of Balaam. With these events complete, the last verse of Numbers 24 said, So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Though Israel would meet Balaam again in Numbers 31 and kill him with the sword, the narrative here is focused on the threat of being cursed by the Lord through the machinations of Balaam. Israel was delivered from this possibility. With that, the narrative turns to the great moment hoped for since the time of Abraham.
Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt and the great deeds I accomplished there. The power of Pharaoh was stripped. To me, what God would you compare? I led you through the wilderness, even to the land of the Amorite. But of his power, who would confess when I destroyed him from your sight? I brought you to the Jordan by my hand, and I brought you through it as well. I placed you in the most beautiful land, and it is there that you now dwell. Speak of the deeds of the Lord all your days. Be sure to honor him and sing out his praise. Our second thought today is we will serve the Lord. It's verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Although a large number of versions follow this general translation, it misses the point. First, the word translated as men is the plural of Baal. It signifies a lord, master, husband, etc. It refers to one who has supreme authority over those under him. Jericho, as the first point of battle, is being used as a summary of the inhabitants of the land for the subsequent battles. Here's my translation of it. And you passed through the Jordan and came to Jericho and fought against the lords, the Baale of Jericho, the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. It is as if Jericho is the main location of Canaan because it was the first engaged in battle. The lords of Jericho then speak of the leaders of all of the ethnic groups within Canaan. These same people groups, although mentioned in a different order, were referred to by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's what it said. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. The contents of this verse convey the fourth major section of the discourse, the move through the Jordan and the subduing of the land of Canaan. Israel defeated those who came against them. Israel engaged these foes. Verse 11 continues, but I delivered them into your hand. Though speaking to Israel in the plural, he notes their united nature and what transpired. Va'eten otam be'yedchem and gave them, plural, into your hand, singular hand. Israel was given the victory because of the Lord's granting of it to them. With that, and despite still speaking about the subduing of the land, I would take the next verse as the final section of the discourse, which is the planting of Israel in the land of promise. Verse 12, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. Va'eshlach lifnechem et hatzirah vatgarash otam mifnechem. And I sent before your faces the hornet, and it drove them out from before your faces. This is the last of three times that the hornet is mentioned in the Bible. It is derived from tsara, to be struck with leprosy. Thus, it is an afflictor like leprosy. The Lord sent this afflictor, the hornet, before Israel in order to defeat the enemy, driving them out. Due to the article, the hornet, the language is to be taken metaphorically. Similar terminology is used concerning bees in Deuteronomy 144 and Psalm 118, verse 12. There, bees are equated with one's enemies, not literal insects. Then Joshua says that this is fulfilled in the case of the Amorites in the next clause. However, Moses, speaking of the same battle, showed that it was, in fact, Israel who defeated them. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. That was repeated in Deuteronomy 4, verse 47. And it was referring to the kings Sihon and Og. 
Therefore, this is referring to a connection between the hornet and its associated word meaning leprosy. The Lord promised health and long life to Israel if they held to his laws. As they were going into a land defiled by those things which are opposed to a healthy lifestyle, the enemy had been or would be afflicted with disease to the point where they were incapable of standing up to Israel's enemies. Thus, the hornet is a metaphor for God's judgment of sickness upon them, preparing them for destruction by Israel. As the Bible records that Israel actually faced these foes in battle, this is a reasonable explanation for the term the hornet, which is said to have been sent before them. The same types of effects are noted upon the people of Israel during their own times of siege from the enemies who came against them. The overall evidence demonstrates that the words the hornet are speaking of the effects upon the people as a result of their destruction by Israel as the Lord led them. As noted, this included, verse 12 continues, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. The word also is not in the text, and it confuses the substance of what is said. Two kings the Amorite, know in your sword and know in your bow. Pretty much everyone says this is referring to the two kings east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. Rather, it pertains to two main kings, but it is referring to the Amorites on both sides of the Jordan. This goes back, for example, to Joshua 10, where it said this, Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. There, as quite often is the case elsewhere, it is singular, showing the united nature of the people. And gathered together and went up five kings, the Amorite. It is five kings, but one people, even though they were not all Amorites. Rather, they included Hittites and Jebusites and so on, but they are lumped together as being a part of the Amorite. After the battle, it repeated the notion that the Lord delivered up the Amorite before the children of Israel. In this chapter, the listing given in the previous verse began with the Amorite. Thus, the rest of the people groups are listed under the Amorite. There was the Amorite east of the Jordan, and there was the Amorite west of the Jordan. The words speak of the total victory over the enemies in all the land that they possess. It is because of these words that I say this belongs in the final section of the discourse, that of the planting of Israel in the land of promise. This verse is only referring to the battles after they have been completed in the narrative. The defeat of the two kings was recorded in verses 24, 8, and 11. The defeat in 24, 8 was the king of the Amorite, lumped together as one, east of the Jordan. And the defeat in 24, 11 was the king of the Amorite, lumped together as one, west of the Jordan. Therefore, this is more an explanation that rest had been granted than a description of the process of granting it. The Lord provided the rest through his efforts. With that, he then reaffirms that notion. Verse 13, I have given you a land for which you did not labor. Does anybody see Jesus in this? It's all the work of the Lord. He's given them rest. They didn't have to labor. They did not have to work we do not have to do a thing for salvation. Keep thinking of Jesus. Everything is done by the Lord. He did the law. He fulfilled it. He died on the cross. He came out of the grave. We didn't do anything. All we have to do is believe and enter. That's all Israel had to do was believe and enter. Think of Jesus when you read the Bible. More precisely, I'll read it again. Verse 13, I have given you a land for which you did not labor. More precisely, and I have given to you a land which you did not become weary in her. The word for implies attaining the land, but that is not what is being conveyed. It is referring to the things in the land. In other words, the Lord gave them the land as noted in the previous verse. But within the land, there was no need to then start making it productive. That was all set up for them by the previous inhabitants who the Lord drove out. 
Forests were cleared, wells were dug, roads were in place, thorns would have been burned off. And I got to tell you something, Israel is full of thorns and so on. This is indicated by the use of the word yaga, to become weary. It comes from a primitive root signifying to grasp. As such, it means to be exhausted, tire, toil, be weary, and so on. When one is tired, he will grasp onto something to hold himself up. If you don't believe that, you should have been at my house for the past three days. Oh, Israel did not have this problem. And more, the next words are said in a similar fashion. Verse 13 continues, and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. The translation is just right. The cities were there, they were cleared of inhabitants, and Israel moved right in and started cooking dinner that night. And more, verse 13 continues, you eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. The words are fine, but reversed. Vineyards and olive groves, which not you did plant, you eat. At the first harvest, all they had to do was go out and start plucking produce off the vines and trees. After that, the maintenance would be up to them. Israel, think of yourself in Christ. He did everything to get you to where you are. Now you just have to maintain your salvation. That doesn't mean you're going to lose it. I'm simply saying that you have to just do your own thing. Grow in holiness. Everybody's seeing the process here. Israel was given a land of abundance by the Lord. He did everything to prepare it for them in advance. If one thinks about it, if the land was divided into languages at the time of Peleg, who was born in the year 1758 Anno Mundi, and Abraham received his call in 2084 Anno Mundi, then the population of Canaan at the time would not have been great. However, with the addition of almost 500 years between the promise and Israel's entry into the land, Joshua began in the year 2555 Anno Mundi, there would have been many more people many more cities, much more productive land, and so on. The Lord prepared everything by his wisdom to ensure Israel could immediately move in and be secure. As for the contents of this verse, it is exactly what Moses said would be the case from Deuteronomy 6. So it shall be, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities that you did not build, Houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now think of the words I just read you from Deuteronomy 6 and the typology that may be presented next week. As this is so, and as Moses also warned, Joshua continues, verse 14, now therefore, Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. And now, fear Jehovah and serve him in perfection and in truth. The word fear signifies to have a fearful reverence of the Lord. In treating him flippantly, he will be displeased and consequences for that attitude will result. The word translated as perfection, tamim, is found in much of the Old Testament. However, it is found mostly in three books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Ezekiel. In those books, it is mostly used in reference to the unblemished nature of the sacrifices which are offered to the Lord. They were to be perfect because they are given as typical of the Lord. The idea is that just as the Lord is perfect, so is to be the service of the Lord's people toward him. The word emet, or truth, is from aman, meaning to confirm or to support. Thus, there is a sense of assuredness, establishment, and faithfulness being conveyed. In this, the people were not to simply go through the motions, nor just pay lip service. Rather, they were to serve perfectly and faithfully. As an example, you go to church, you attend. You stand up when they tell you to stand up. You sit down when they tell you to sit down. You go through the rote things that the church has planned and done for 2,000 years, and you're no better off when you leave than when you came in. You're no closer to the Lord in your heart or in your soul. You're supposed to serve the Lord perfectly, okay? That's what we do. We come in here, we learn the word of the Lord, and then we leave and we apply what we have learned to our walk with the Lord. 
Everybody seeing this, it's yes, it's Israel, but it's also speaking about you because the process of salvation doesn't change. God does the work. We enter into our rest and then we serve him in perfection and in truth. All right. But more to serve in truth would be to serve in accord with the word given by the Lord through Moses. If the Lord is perfect, then the word he gave them was perfect as well. As the word anticipated the coming of Jesus, as it says in John 5.39, and so forth, then the logical deduction to be made is that only in serving the Lord through Jesus is one serving him in perfection and in truth. If you remember from the last sermon, and I brought the point up during this sermon, the law is never mentioned in this entire discourse. This is pointing to Jesus. It is pointing to our final rest in Jesus. Israel hasn't received it yet, and it's actually pointing to it for them. Jesus conveyed this thought in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As for Israel at the time of Joshua, in order to properly serve the Lord, Joshua says, verse 14, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Rather than a separate thought as rendered here, it is all one sentence. And serve the Lord. The narrative here implicitly returns to the Genesis account where Jacob said the same thing to his family. Genesis 35. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. As was seen previously, the gathering is in Shechem the same location as that account in Genesis. But notice also that Joshua clearly says that not only did the fathers on the other side of the Euphrates worship other gods, but so did the fathers who lived in Egypt. They had fallen into the world of idolatry as is evidenced in Leviticus 17 verse 7 and Amos 5 verse 25. The latter is then cited by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as noted in our text verse today. They had to be called out of that in order to make them a people prepared for the Lord. As these things are only anticipatory of the coming of Christ, one can more fully understand the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist was to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. Israel rejected him, and they were exiled. Someday, they will come to Christ. Hence, the return of Elijah as one of the two witnesses of Revelation is ahead. As for Israel under Joshua, verse 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. There is a strong emphasis in the words, Ve'im ra be'enechem la'avod et Yehovah b'charu lachem hayom et mi ta'avodun. And if evil in your eyes to serve Yehovah, choose to you the day whom you will surely serve. As Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Joshua is essentially letting Israel's leaders know this. Either one will serve the Lord or he will find other gods to serve, even if it is the God of self, because man is designed to serve someone. Or maybe, verse 15 continues, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river. Im et Elohim asher avedu avotechem asher be'ever ha'nachar. If gods which served your fathers 
which inside the river. It means the gods of Mesopotamia across the Euphrates. These were household gods, gods of stone on the street corners and so on. They were those things fashioned and designed by man for the purpose of being man's gods. Verse 15 continues, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Ve'im et Elohe ha'emori asheratem yoshvim be'artsam. And if gods, the Amorite, which you dwell in their land. These gods lean toward nature and creation, such as Baal, Asherah, the sun, moon, stars, and so forth. The connection between all of them is that they are false gods of man's devising. They are powerless to assist and powerless to save. Whereas, verse 15 finishes with, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I and my house, we will serve Jehovah. He has made the proclamation and it is essentially an eternal one. The reason is because there is no record of Joshua's family apart from his father, Nun. It says he is from the tribe of Ephraim in Numbers 13.8, and although there is a Joshua recorded in 1 Chronicles 7.27 that may not even be the same Joshua, the father's name is spelled differently, Nun, instead of Nun. But even if it is the same Joshua, there's no record beyond him. It simply says Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. That would make him the last of his house. Therefore, as there is no record of Joshua having a wife or children, his proclamation, at least from a scriptural sense, extends the word house to those who are of his caliber and faith rather than a recorded family. The same thought is expressed by Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. A person can be a part of a household and have no family at all because he's of the household of faith. Joshua doesn't have any recorded family. And therefore, when he says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord, from the, from the aspect of at least scripture, it's saying anybody who is like me. Everybody got that? If you don't, you can consider the lesson of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it says he doesn't have any genealogy. He's got nobody before him and nobody after him. Well, how do we know? But scripture is just identifying this man. It doesn't say where he came from or where he's going to, when he was born or when he died. And therefore, he is being used as a type. So is Joshua. That's the point I'm making. Go read the book of Hebrews and you'll understand that more fully, okay? He is a type of Christ, he being the head of the house of faith. And this is exactly what the word wants us to see. Everything is centered on the coming of Jesus Christ and then the further explanation and revelation of him into the future. It is he who is the focal point of our understanding of God as well as our experience with him. God is in the infinite realm. We are in the finite realm. The two cannot interact without a connector between the two. But even more, God is holy and he is pure. Man is fallen and he is tainted. God in Christ is the purifier and the connector. He is the way to God and the door through whom access is finally obtained. Without him, I hate to tell you folks, there is no hope at all. But with him, with Jesus Christ in your life, there is absolute surety. Thank God for Jesus Christ who alone gives us the joy of restoration and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. Yes, Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, the more that you go through scripture and the more that you see what is going on, the more perfect it becomes in your mind. You just have to get into the word and you have to understand. Throughout the book of Joshua, God has covered every possible contingency that you can think of. Okay, this happened here and this happened here, but what about this? And so he gives us another typological representation just in case somebody doubts. Okay, he's going to do that in Judges as well. We're going to see the same thing. God covers every base so that we can say, I am absolutely certain that what I am following is correct. People have doubts. If you just follow through the word, you can find that you have no doubt at all. God has done the work. God has laid it out for us, and God has blessed us with the giving of his son. And that's all he asks you to do is to believe. If you're still stuck in Hebrew roots, 
you know, thinking where you've got to go observe the feast of the Lord or you've got to observe the Sabbath day or you've got to not eat pork or any of those crazy things. Just go back to what I just read you from the book of John. Think of this. If you are believing that there's something from the law that you need to do to be pleasing to God, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Where was worship required of the people of Israel? At the temple in Jerusalem. He's saying that is no longer the case. If the temple is out, then the law with the temple is out. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation. He's standing there making a pun. Jesus, Yeshua, salvation is of the Jews. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of it. He's using his name as a pun. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in pork, not in sitting on a day and doing something down at the temple in Jerusalem, not in a Sabbath day at the Seventh-day Adventists, none of those things. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's exactly what we're seeing in Joshua. Everything is pointing us to the truth that God wants us to focus on his son. We can have a relationship with him once again if we do that. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, and the only way you can know if what you are believing is true is read your Bible. I could teach you anything here. And if you don't know that word, you have no basis at all to say, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's leading me down the wrong path. If you don't read this word, you are responsible for your bad doctrine. Read the word, think on the word, cherish the word. Get up in the morning and read it. Go to bed at night and read it. If you want, put it in your car like I do and play it all the time. I go through the Bible. I just got done with, uh, what is it, Revelation? Boop, right back in Genesis. Now I'm up to Kings, and that's only been a... I don't drive at all, folks. I drive five minutes a day. I go down to the mall in the morning. I work for a couple hours. It's a mile and a half, and I drive back home. I do that six days a week. On Saturday, I happen to go to the projects, which is an extra 20 minutes, and then I come here on Sunday, and that's all the driving I do. And yet I go through the Bible probably six times every year. If you're driving more than that, you're going to get a lot of the Bible. You're going to know when somebody's teaching you wrong. Please get into your Bible. Okay, and call on Jesus today if you haven't done it. Um, my brother told me during the break that uh, uh, there's on the YouTube, uh, I'm sorry, on the news, a house that exploded and it was caught through a, a, you know, one of those cameras that's in your doorbell. People have a security camera. These people were at home, I guess. Was somebody in there? There was, I'm telling you, there was absolutely nothing left of this multi-million dollar house. It looks like a hole in the ground, a gas line or something blew up. There is nothing left of it. They're sitting there one moment, probably watching TV and thinking life is good. And the next moment they are standing in front of the Lord because when they wake up, that's where they're going to be. Okay. You don't know your last moment. I say that all the time and I know it sounds almost cliche, but those people had no idea what was coming. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 44. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. Think of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. It's all about Jesus. Every word I just read you is about Jesus, and that's from Psalm 44. Every word is about Jesus. Next week is Joshua 24, 16 through 28. The people need to be properly shod to walk before the Lord carefully. It is entitled, For He is a Holy God. Part three. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 57th Joshua sermon. And then after that, we got one more. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a tough one, and I know it's tough because I wouldn't have gotten this. I would not have gotten this one. Okay. Somebody's going to get it, though, because they're good at this type of thing. Everybody knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody knows that. What are the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
Well, then you should have gone home and studied for it. <laughs> Come on, anybody? I would not have... What? Yeah, it's really close on the last one. What? That's really... You got the second one. We got two of them now, almost two. Okay, I'm going to have to tell you. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, Hananiah. I mean, grace. Anyway, the grace of the Lord. Okay, uh, I would not have gotten that, but it was just gnawing at me to ask that question, so I said, I'm going to ask it. And the reason why is because years ago, I was at that real legalistic church down the road, and uh, the pastor said, everybody knows... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do any of you? And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. I should have remembered it myself, but I, I blew that off because, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so I wanted to see if anybody else was more, uh, what do you call it, than me. Yeah. Okay. Got a poem, and we'll be done. For he is a holy God, part two. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea as directed by me. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them too. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. The days did accrue. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. A battle did ensue. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess the land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war with Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, that prophesying dumbbell. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand because Balak's plans were askew. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites too. But I delivered them into your hand. My victory over them was grand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, as you know. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build. Such was your grant, and now you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant." Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods your hearts have inclined toward, which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, if you have the nerve, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So to you, I tell. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word that you have given us. Thank you for the treasures that are in it and for the lessons that can lead us for a lifetime until the day we stand in your presence and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord for all of eternity. And Lord, not that we want to rush you, but that day would be really nice pretty soon. We're all waiting, Lord, and whenever you plan on it, whenever that day is set, we will be jumping to meet you in the air. Oh, Lord, how good it will be to be in your presence. Thank you for the blessed hope that we possess. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, let's see here. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper. Just so you know, anybody here that's visiting, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are welcome to come forward. Okay, sometimes I don't say that and people won't come forward and they're kind of timid and I didn't know if I was allowed. If you believe Jesus is your Savior, you come on forward. All right. Uh, one thing you should do, though, and I haven't said this as much as when I was on the beach. Obviously, there was water right there, but I always would say every uh, Sunday after the service, if you've never been baptized, you should do that. That's obedience to the word of the Lord. I'm not talking about infant baptism, which does nothing and is not scriptural. I'm talking about receiving the Lord and then following him in a picture of what he has done. Being buried with Christ 
and being raised to newness of spirit with Christ. That's a picture, and he uh, would ask that you would, actually, he commands us to in Matthew 28. So if you've never been baptized, please do that. I remember one day I was on the beach, and uh, a guy that I've come to know very well, Tony, he comes, not every year, he didn't come for three years because of the COVID thing, but uh, he comes most every year with his wife, and he was on the beach, and that's where I met him, and I mentioned baptism, and man, that guy sprung up like a, like a chicken or whatever the term is. He was up, and I want to be baptized. So uh, if you've never done it, please consider doing that. But for now, the uh, Lord's Supper is the second of the two ordinances that the Lord has mandated for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Paul wrote these words about that in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have blessed us. He would have said, Baruch Ata Adonai Loheinu. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch ata Adonai Luhenu, Melech Olam, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the uh, will be unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Folks online, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, to my mother. I was doing something when you came by. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell Mike and your sister, I hope they're okay. Thank you. All right, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Lori. Is that her? How do you say her name? Lori. Lori. Okay, I thought that was it. Okay. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have her in prayer. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold them together, okay. Yeah. All right. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was I picking on you too much today? The what? Was I picking on you too much today? Picking on you. 
said your brain was misfiring, and I said, oh. is that different? From oh, yeah, no, that's fine. It was <laughs> no different than normal. The body and the blood of the Lord she's Jesus Christ. Cake. Yeah, she's a good mm -hmm. one. She's I a keeper. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Thank Lord you. Jesus Christ. Her shoulder's working. Yeah, look at that. You see that? Oh. She lifted it all the way up. Wow, good. Well, that was good. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, she lifted it all the way. Yeah. Wow. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So good of you to come. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so good to see you again. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, yep, yep. Lord God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. And we remember his death on the cross until he comes again. And may that day be soon. Uh, lots of people that have, you know, physical problems and trials going on right now. And uh, we mentioned some of them earlier. And then we had Lori who just had to leave a while ago. She wasn't feeling so well. So keep, keep your uh, brothers and sisters in prayer and uh, try to send out a word of encouragement. And especially, you know, I hadn't thought about what uh, Don had said about our missionaries. Um, I'm one that is kind of like they described. I don't want to bother people, and so I'm not one to go sending emails and stuff. But maybe it's better that they get them and delete them rather than not get them at all. Like Ray and Jess, I always hear from them with their monthly uh, or whenever uh, Jess types those things up and sends them out. And usually respond with thank you and I'm glad things are going okay or whatever. But, uh, I, you know, remembering the missionaries is actually an important thing to do. Um, we take it for granted that they're doing what they want to do and that they're fine, but uh, they go through the same struggles and trials that we do. So if you have a missionary you're supporting or that you know, maybe just take some time and uh, thank them and uh, send out a good word to them because that's really important. It's just not something that I don't process that way, and it would never be intentional to ignore people. Uh, Jody was overseas and she'd email me with something we'd talk about it whatever but I'm just not one to initiate things because I don't want to pester people but uh, maybe it's better to pester them so let's yes. all pester our missionaries okay <laughs> Heavenly Father we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to acknowledge who you are and what you mean to us in our lives we thank you we thank you so much for this word that keeps telling us about the coming of Jesus in in these typological ways that can reassure us that we know we're following the right path and that we are living according to your will and your word. And then when we get to the New Testament, everything sinks. It all fits together. Thank you for that assurance that we possess and help us to be obedient to this word, even when it's difficult, even when it's not culturally appropriate. Who cares about that? What matters is that we are pleasing to you. Help us to be so. And to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.